To go deeper into our episodes, please visit the show notes in your podcast app. Or to get a fuller, unedited experience, go find this episode on SpotlightOnPodcast.com. There, the notes are packed with links to resources that give you more about the people and topics explored here. Hello, and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on music impresario Jonathan Shank, the CEO and founder of Terrapin Station Entertainment. Jonathan is known for his instincts and successes in sniffing out unique opportunities in underserved spaces in the live entertainment industry. He creates business successes in categories and markets often overlooked by the large corporations that dominate so much of the entertainment sector today. Jonathan has developed projects for names as disparate as the Bob Marley Estate, Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead, and multiple family entertainment properties. Disney Junior Dance Party on Tour, Peppa Pig Live, and the Fresh Beat Band Live, all while generating more than $80 million in gross box office sales. Jonathan earned a Grammy Award in 2009 for his role in creating the groundbreaking album Global Drum Project with Mickey Hart. And in 2020, he received the TJ Martell Trailblazer Award for his work producing such charity events as the Homeward Bound Concert and a tribute to the music of Linda Ronstadt. Jonathan has had a fascinating run so far, and by the end of this talk, you'll see that he's just getting started. Enjoy. So, let's jump in. Yeah, man. Coming in high. (laughs) Do me a favor, and for my benefit and for listeners' benefit, give us the who and what is Terrapin. So Terrapin Station Entertainment started in 2020, height of the pandemic. I had always thought of Terrapin Station as this mythical place where all these characters gather and where everybody came for the show. We kind of always thought of our business because we were producing a lot of this intellectual property and these iconic characters from Disney and and Warner Brothers and Peppa Pig, et cetera. And so I always thought of, you know, Terrapin Station as the place where all the characters gather. So it felt like a natural starting point for our company. I always was really just enamored with that song and composition. I think it bridges the two worlds between what I've done in the past and where I'm heading in the future. I one time (laughs) went, I saw The Dead, I think it was 10 or 12 times in one summer, and I started to take it personally that Terrapin Station wasn't played at any of those shows. I remember that feeling. I remember that feeling. <laughs> You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why am I not getting Scarlet Fire? Everybody else is getting Scarlet exactly. Fire. And I'm not getting Scarlet Fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How is it? You know, and these are great. It's actually, they're fun conversations to have now because it's, man, I can't believe we actually got to think that way that we were, there was so much to consume at that moment that. It was an amazing time. And, and I think for, for a lot of us, obviously, the other thing about Terrapin Station is that's where my original kind of roots of music are, but also just my work with the Grateful Dead and, and Mickey specifically and, and his inspiration to me to, to push my career in, in various places 
it, it really just speaks back to that as well. Yeah. If Terrapin Station is the platform that you've built, what are the legs of the platform? What are the different things y'all do? I really break it down now into, into three pillars, three legs. One of them is licensing IP and developing and producing those shows for stage. So that can go from everything to the Bob Marley immersive that we've had in London, Toronto, and LA, and creating and producing that, and working alongside the Marley family, to the Disney Junior Live franchise, which we've done about almost 500 shows. That show is a preschool-driven show with all characters, Spider-Man, Ghost Spider, Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, and so really runs the gamut of genres and demos, et cetera. So that's really one pillar that we do. We're continuing to license more IP and work with different rights holders in the family entertainment space, in the game show space, in podcasting space, all over the place. So we're excited about that. The second pillar is that we have a network of stadiums that we work with across MLS and NFL and Major League Baseball to help bring shows and content into those stadiums. What started as one or two teams and really consulting for them and helping connect the dots for them with agents and promoters and helping to bring in, in shows has turned into a real kind of tentpole of our business. And we're blessed to have a Billy Joel, Stevie Nicks show next year, a couple of Luke Combs shows in Milwaukee, and a recently announced Kenny Chesney show in DC. So it's one of the fastest growing parts of our business and really speaks to the experience that we have both in producing shows and also in our kind of tight knit connection to the music industry and, and the agent community and promoter community. So that's been really exciting and really feel like these teams, the goal there is a lot of them only get like a couple shows a year, like maybe one, two, three shows a year. And it, it's not that they want a hundred shows a year. It's just, they'd like to take that number from two to four, or if they're getting four from four to six or to eight. And I think that there's only limited windows to be able to produce shows and content in these stadiums. And I think it's a really vital part of the ecosystem at this point. That's been amazing. The third pillar or leg, as you say, is really our, our acquisitions, which we acquired Black Ink Presents this past year. And their specialty really is film to orchestra. If you can thread it all together, well, a lot of what we're doing is non-traditional entertainment. And that's really exciting. And Black Ink is really a best-in-class service provider for production services below the line. But they also are amazing creatives and, and working across a lot of the top titles in the film to orchestra space. And that's really exciting for us, just continuing to look at IP in different ways. It doesn't all have to be live action or fit for a certain size theater or a certain size arena were malleable. So it's really given a scale. So if you look at those three legs, we're really focused in there at really taking the foundation that we have and rising all those ships at one time. It's interesting because given the era that you sort of professionally came of age in and that you've been growing your businesses in, it seems like if somebody said, what's Jonathan Shank do? I think the answer would have to be that he takes the love and knowledge of music and live music, but applies it in these, he goes fishing in ponds that other people aren't fishing in. 
So in this sort of world of corporate consolidation or just intense competition in the pure play music side, you've been able to take those principles and apply them in other areas. Is that fair? Definitely fair. And I think that prior to producing shows, I was just managing artists and in the artist community and had a long history doing that. So I think of all of these projects as they were artists. It's not that I shied away from the artist world. It's really that I kind of wanted to take those platforms and protocols and apply them into some of the more non-traditional spaces. And with the partnership with the JB that we have with Sony Music, they're super interested and aggressively wanting to build into the live music space and specifically into the non-traditional live music space. And so what we do really fits well with within that paradigm and within that partnership. I want to double click on some of the pillars and some of the specifics about the pillars. Something I read you speaking about elsewhere, it may have been in some of the coverage of your stadium deals, was this idea that there's the stadium, there's the field, but then there's like the physical plant of the stadium. Something in that resonated for me. I had a gig several years ago where I was looking at places for alternative programming. And I remember touring some MLB stadiums and walking around the properties and saying, God, like there's so like, that's a nightclub and that's a silent disco room. That's a place where you could really do a cool thing with a, a speaker series and two people sitting quietly with 50 people around like the parking lots. The stadium footprints are so interesting in terms of the little nooks and the different types of of spaces. And I wonder, will we see you developing things around those areas? Or are you just like, it's the footprint of the field, get me 50,000 people and I'm happy? I mean, we're definitely looking at scaling different things. We have a EDM festival that's going into one of the MLS facilities and it encompasses the whole facility. We are definitely working on some outside of the stadium activations, parking lot, et cetera. And we have an exciting mini golf activation that we're really psyched about that's coming to, to life in 2024. But I think you're exactly right. You have to look at these things through different lenses. This is a, it's a big piece called real estate and there's a lot of different ways that people like to come out and consume events and entertainment and content. Yeah, we're always thinking about that stuff and we're definitely working on a handful of ways to bring people out to more than just the game day or the concert day. When you work with a new piece of IP, especially one, for lack of a better way to say it, that's sort of a, a corporate-owned IP, something that's like a brand that we all know and love or that we're familiar with yeah. or that our kids know. What's the creative development process like? Are, are you at that table? Are you driving that process? Or does the IP know what it wants to do? I can give you a couple of examples. The short answer is that it's different for every rights owner. Some of them are much more malleable and flexible than others. But I will say the Disney Junior Live Tour has been a true collaboration and they have been amazing partners to work with in bringing each of these shows to life. We do have a seat at the table. And you know what we do is we build creative teams around each of these tours. So director, script writer, choreographer, wardrobe, et cetera. And everybody has a seat at the table and really brings it together. There isn't a, it has to be this. There are, of course, certain things and 
guardrails, so to speak, that you work within, but there is a tremendous amount of creativity that goes into even these shows that are, when you're working with these iconic brands, there is a lot of creative freedom. And there is, at least within the shows that we've worked with, it's opened the door to work with so many other creative people, be it directors, choreographers, et cetera, and challenging ourselves to bring in even better dancers. But just to kind of give you an example, we're absolutely central to the casting process on all of these tours. We are instrumental in talking through the creative, making sure the timing works, making sure that the movements work on stage. And then in terms of the build of the actual scenic, we do that from top to bottom. I'll also make another example, which is that we're working with a brand new YouTube channel. Well, the channel's not new, but we're developing a show for it called Gracie's Corner, which is an amazing property that's getting over 100 million views a month on YouTube. And I think rounding the corner on 2 billion views on TikTok, it's really a special property. And the reason I bring this up is just the contrast between the creative process with a brand on a linear TV or or a a media giant versus a, a YouTube channel, which is a bit more of an organic project, is that every conversation with regards to that show, everything has to be created. All of the visual content needs to be created. Any narrative would need to be created. All of the choreography from scratch would need to be produced and staged and blocked, et cetera. So they're the same buckets, but you're filling them in different ways. That's really the exciting part for us is we love building the, I love building these shows from scratch. It's fun. Something I've always been curious about just as like a, an observer or even an audience member is I'm sure you have a better sort of technical term for it, but like maintaining the character integrity and what's the appropriate way for the character to behave? How does the character's personality come through? And not just things like swear words or innuendo or things like that, but literally like a having kids and being in this business, like kids watch the same stuff over and over again. They're so intimately familiar with this IP in these, in these universes. How does that translate from a company that is managing a character? How do you get that institutional knowledge of the character would never react this way, or this, this character doesn't (laughs) yell or, you know what I mean? Like it's because it would seem like if you get that wrong, the the universe collapses. You know what I find is that, Within each one of these companies, there's like the one person that knows exactly what the character would say or what the mannerisms would be. I glean from the experts at the brands, right? So the short answer to your question is that we do character training. There are guidelines and we do training days with the various characters to make sure that their mannerisms are correct, that when they're posing with fans, that Everything is done a certain way. And I think that just the same way as when you go to the theme park and everything is very systematic. When you are dealing with a character at that level, there's an expectation that it is going to be first class and that it's going to be embody not just the the physical look of the character, but embody the character holistically. I'd say from a producer standpoint, I hold myself to a pretty high standard when it comes to these things. 
Because I, you, as a parent, and not only as a parent, as a, as a as an adult who would be going to pay to some of these immersive experiences, if it's not going to be a first class experience, then at least to me, it should be left alone. Yeah. So I think that we're all kind of holding ourselves to a certain standard from that standpoint. But tactically, everybody gets trained how to kind of be each one of these characters. And there are small pools of people that are great at it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's really, it, it's interesting. And a lot of these people come from the dance community because movement is so much a part of it. And of course, when you're in a costume, you're emoting just as much through body movement as you are through verbalization. It really is a, a unique art form and certainly one that's probably underappreciated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what you described kind of reminded me in other contexts of like when you're working with an artist, it's like sometimes there's the super fan who has somehow worked their way into the management world and is either on payroll or is like the one that management knows if we're going to write something in the artist's voice, this person knows how to do it. Or this person knows the right way to refer to that incident because, you know, Mm -hmm. they just they know all the things. They can channel the artist. You know, the funny part about what you just said is that I felt like I was that guy when I was working for like Mickey Hart. And I felt everybody who was in the orbit of the dead was that person. <laughs> That's so funny. It was like, it was like, you weren't the only one. Everybody who, who worked in the orbit of the, the dead had that knowledge, that deeper, that deeper knowledge or that deeper sense of community of what the, this was all about. Yeah, I think that what you're saying all comes from experience and just there is of course an innate sense of how to do things the right way. But most of what you're saying ultimately comes from the real life experience of having put these shows up, seeing how people react to various things, how to put a group of people together, how to make sure that the fans are super served and the crew and artist and cast or whatever group of of people, company uh, that's out on the road, that they're also really comfortable. And I think that's really what you're describing. And and I think the people that are the community of people within the music industry that are really good at what they do, the senses that they're tapping into ultimately is how to manage a, a group of people and how to help lift them up hold all the time. And just continuing to figure out a creative path. But on the business side, it it kind of all converges, right? Because you're just trying to lift this, whether it's an IP project, an artist, it it really, and that's, I think, a good kind of full circle point is that it's the same skill set for all of these projects, whether you're managing an artist or producing a tour, it's many of the same skill sets. That's what I come back to a lot in my experience. Yeah. What was the first family entertainment property you worked with and were you met with immediate commercial success or did you have to take a few stabs at it? All right. So here's the story. The very first thing that I was interested in was Yo Gabba Gabba. And I didn't end up working with Yo Gabba Gabba, but what happened was that I wrote a business plan and I got a business model out of it. Shortly thereafter, I started managing Victoria Justice. Right as that started to take off, 
and she was on Nickelodeon, I got involved with the Fresh Beat Band. And the Fresh Beat Band had incredible success domestically here in North America and very little exposure outside the U.S. But here in the U.S., it was like a frenzy right out of the gate. Yeah, it's, I had a lot of commercial, so much commercial success that I thought that that's the way all preschool and family oh, no. projects were. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, these guys, I remember, you're, you're going to love this. We put up eight beacons for this group and it blew out like immediately. And I was going, I should have been doing this the whole time. Meanwhile, ever since then, I'm going, that's like my litmus test. Like, could they blow out eight beacons? <laughs> You know, was that two shows YouTube a day, channel? Thursday through Sunday? Is that how that, that yeah. business works? Yeah, it was, it was it's exactly what it was. Yeah, it was two shows a day because the labor call was expensive. So doing two in a day was a great way to do it. And for all of this family entertainment, that's really a, the model. Yeah, but Fresh Beat Band um, was an incredible success. And that led to Peppa Pig. And then just like any other vertical in the business... As you're successful, when one more doors open, and so yeah, that was after that. It was Octonauts and Teletubbies and Power Rangers, and and then Disney, Disney Junior. So it's been amazing to be part of so many of these iconic brands, but also now the way content is out in the world, it's a whole new pond looking into YouTube and Netflix and all the streamers and the ability for a two-year-old to be able to call out Alexa and ask for music is really going to change the way that the people listen to music and change listening habits for that generation because of their ability to be able to have it at their fingertips from such a young age. It also affects the algorithms of things like lullaby and things like nursery rhymes and things you never think of, but that actually it might sound ridiculous, but these verticals are actually becoming very important to the major music groups, the universals and Sony music groups at this point. Not to swing the conversation in that way, but I do feel like compared to what I was just telling you, my beginnings in working in family entertainment, there is a tremendous amount more interest in it now than there was in 2010 when I was trying to chase after Yo Gabba Gabba. It feels like now people want to talk about it. Maybe record labels want to sign it. And that's been exciting for, for me to watch that because it felt like it was always a side dish for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. If you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight On, please share us with a friend and leave a review or star rating on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. Outside of things like metrics, you mentioned when you were talking about the YouTube star you're working with or the YouTube property and the page views and the monthly subscribers and things of that nature. Outside of just metrics, what elements have to be there when you're identifying a new piece of IP or, or somebody knocks on your door, what's the filter that you run it through? What's the criteria that you have to see? Who's the team? Going back to what we were talking about, treat it like an artist, right? Who's the lawyer? Who's the business manager? Who's the agent? Who's the, if it's a licensed thing, like who's doing the toys or consumer products? What's the connectivity? What's the connected tissue? Just starting there. 
And then if it's just a TV show or just a YouTube channel, what else makes it a brand? What else sets it apart? I also think you can look at metrics all day long, but you also have to go with a bit of your gut and know what's going to translate. People talk about algorithms and metrics and all this stuff, but sometimes what people don't talk about, especially with regards to family entertainment, is what do the kids want? Just the same way an artist should be asking, what does my audience want? I think that we try to look at it through that lens a bit of what do the kids want? And I think that's the kind of reverse engineering of if I can get there in my head of this is what the kids want, then maybe we're going to try to develop something. But the, the idea is to take these things and pierce pop culture in some way. So if it's just going to exist as a YouTube channel or as a Netflix show in a vacuum, it's probably not a franchise. It's not a brand. We're really excited about things that are going to become like massive global franchises. Has a project ever stumped you? A piece of IP walks in the door or you're looking at something and you're like, I I can't get this onto the stage. Power Rangers. Power Rangers was so hard. I I loved that show so much, but if somebody can tell me how to figure out getting these characters jumping around on stage for 90 minutes, but they can't really talk the whole time, you know, it, it was really challenging from a narrative standpoint. And also you want it to be scale. You want, you know, power range, you think of something like big and you don't want it to look small on stage. So that one was a big challenge. It was one that I always thought should have been a huge tour years ago, you know, a long time ago, but that that should have been a huge tour that just couldn't back to that word. It didn't have that connective tissue at that moment to be able to, to do it. So that one was challenging for sure. Yeah. There's been a, a lot of these things of different challenges. The, the biggest thing is trying to not overdo it and not overproduce something. And you know this as a, as a, just as much as anyone else as, as a fan. It's all about the detail and the refinement as opposed to overdoing it. And trying to think about things that way is, I think, a big help. What we were talking about earlier, it seems like it would be easy to dismiss or to not get right or to somehow disregard. I don't know the right word for it, but the notion of like just because the audience is young doesn't mean it doesn't have to ring true to them and be authentic to them. Just the same way that, I don't know, a classic rock artist wouldn't come out and make a K-pop album. You're not going to have, That's right. you know, Thomas the Tank Engine come out and behave like Lightning McQueen. Yeah. Stay on brand, stay in your lane. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I talk about that kind of stuff all the time, especially not just what, what you just said, but take it one step further, lean in you know, lean into the strength of the brand and that core audience. And one of the biggest commonalities between working with artists and working with brands is they're all built to core audiences and bases. And going back to your very first question about Terrapin Station, all of these things are built off of core, core audiences, whether it's Disney, Bob Marley, these artists that have great core audiences. And think about even right now, the biggest core audience in, in entertainment. Taylor Swift, 
I think that's where it all starts. It's that seed, the world that I want to be in is just finding projects that have core audiences. And they might be family entertainment, they could be artist driven, or they might be brand driven. This decade, especially, I think has highlighted how important it is to have a core audience. Because if you have that, you could argue that you might not need a label. You might not need a network. You really can call your shots, whether it's Peppa Pig or Super Kitty or on the other side, the way that artists like I'm going to use some random artists like Billy Strings or Goose are building their core audience. The, the, the goal ultimately is that they'll be able to super serve that audience for a long period of time, carry them along for the ride. We're all telling that same story. To use that as sort of the pivot point, I want to ask you a little bit about your relationship with Mickey Hart. And I know you've told the story a bunch of times. So I was reading about how your first interaction with him was a sort of a meeting environment, right? I think you said you were like in a boardroom yeah. or in a meeting room. Yeah, you're in a conference room. But by the end of the meeting, you had somehow connected, right? He had asked you to come work on a project with him. Yeah, it was teed up. Yeah. It was because uh, what I wanted to ask about that was, do you know, did you know at the time or do you know in retrospect what he saw in you or what he liked about you? <laughs> that part of it, I've never really truly thought about. But thinking about it now, I had nothing on the line at that moment. I wasn't pitching him to be his manager. I wasn't pitching him on anything. I was just happy to be in the meeting. And so mm -hmm. I think because of that, there was just like no guard and Mickey has an amazing personality. And if you're in his circle or orbit, he is very welcoming and, and really brings you in. At that moment, you were really wanting to explore live electronic music. And so we had set up this collaboration with Particle, which became ultimately became Hydra. You know, to answer your question, I think it's just that I didn't have any preconceived notions. I, I didn't want or need anything from him. I just was there with some pure ideas and just kind of happy to be there. And then I think even when we went up to his house, I was much looser because I was just like, this is my chance to hang out with Mickey Hart at that moment. So I wasn't thinking about necessarily a whole bunch of business in my head. I was just being myself. And I think that's how the relationship built. I had nothing at stake. I was just there for the music. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, he did definitely take a liking to me and to what we were doing. And then after the project ended, I figured that that, that might be where that chapter ended. But what ended up happening is that probably six months or a year after that project ended, we reconnected over another project. And that's when I realized like, oh, this isn't, this wasn't just about the project. It's, it could be something more. Yeah. By 2006, I was managing all of his projects at that point. And he wanted to put back together the Rhythm Devils and Planet Drum and Mickey Hart Band. And so all of a sudden, I, I was managing all of these projects in an in entirely different stratosphere in terms of planning and producing events, because a lot of it was, there was the Mickey portion, but then we had to produce the whole event as well. So whether it was like Rex Foundation or the Monks or any of that stuff, that's where I got my initial 
experience as a producer. I had never produced anything prior to that, prior to that. And the fact that after working with him, I felt fearless. I think he probably knew that I had a little bit of fearlessness in me because he would say certain things to test to see how far I would go with certain things. I could tell, like, do you think we should fire this guy? Or do you think it's like, oh man, really? I'm going to be part of this decision, (laughs) you know, or do you think we should work with this guy? It was definitely, I think, a very inclusive relationship. And I credit him a lot just for letting me be part of it and, and letting me build on some creativity. And the guy just wants to get up every day and play. He's an amazing, he's super passionate and he works harder than almost any musician I've ever met. There's something interesting about the people, especially from around our generation. I think you might be just a couple years younger than me. And then some of the guys are a few years older than me, but even going as old as like Corin on down to some people younger. It's interesting to me about the Grateful Dead and the related band members that I can't think of a lot of artists who have their business looked after by people who adamantly identify as fans. So many artists, they don't want to hear that, right? Like they don't want you fawning over them or talking about the fandom. I've always wondered if the guys in the dead knew that you had to really get them and understand like what they were and weren't going to do (laughs) for money or for, I think so. You know what I mean? Like they had just a different thing. I I think every person that I can remember that I've worked with in that time was a fan, either was the fan beforehand or had become a head during the time It, it touched them in a special way. It's one of these things. It's just like when you touch something like that, it's, it's like nothing you've ever experienced before. And I did have this moment right before the pandemic with Mickey, where I got to tell him, we, I went up to his house and we hung out for the day. And I remember we were just like walking around his property or whatever. And at one point in the conversation, I was like, yeah, you helped do this. Like you helped get me to this place. And, and he had this great response where he said, well, I always knew the force was strong within you. <laughs> I believe that, man. (laughs) And and that's who he is as a person. And honestly, after that conversation, I felt even more empowered. He's a really special human. And the other thing I'll say to your point about people who work for the Grateful Dead is that everybody that has worked in their circles, whether it's for the individual members of the band or, or the label, there's definitely a special camaraderie amongst all those people because it's like they know the the movements, so to speak. Yep. Um, and yep. there's a unique bond between all of those people. I and mean, even when you run into them at, at shows years later, you, you kind of look at one another and you know there's that special bond for sure. I wanted to spend a little bit of the rest of our time together asking you a little bit about some meta questions about where the business is and where it's going and just what you're viewing out in the world. One of the first things I wanted to ask you about was the exhibition business. You had this amazing interactive sort of installation experience with the Marley Estate. It feels like the rock and roll exhibition business in particular is even more dramatically hit driven than the business is overall, right? Like 
it seems like really only the strong survive. And I'm assuming it's because there's a big nut to, to get these things up and running and they have to be able to sit somewhere to make their money. You know, it, it's almost more like a Broadway show than it is a, a touring entity. But what do you see in the exhibition space? And, and is it, do you look at it lovingly? And is it something you'd like to do more of? Or are you like, man, I've had my fill? Oh, I love it. The, the Marley project is something that was just incredibly inspiring and kind of an honor to be part of. I do see shifts happening in that space. Certainly, we had a moment where everything was projection mapped and thinking about some of the Van Gogh type exhibits, et cetera. In terms of the artist-driven, it is rarefied air to have an artist that's successful enough to be able to drive a standalone exhibit. There are only a few Marleys and Elvises and Pink Floyds and, and David Bowie's in the world, which you well know. I think that the future of these types of experiences is figuring out how to do them in real time alongside the tours. And I think that these can become immersive retail driven experiences that are complementary to the tours that are happening. And to use some examples, I know BTS was incredibly successful with this when they had their tour. And I know Taylor had a few pop-ups, fashion pop-ups in New York and maybe one other place along her tour. But I do believe that this model could work in the future and certainly work for a lot bigger swath of artists than just the, those ones that are in that, that rarefied air. But I think it's ancillary to the tour. U2 has an immersive in Vegas that's happening right now that's ancillary to what's happening at the Sphere. I think that kind of stuff's going to work perfect. Yeah, that's really interesting. When we did the two Bowie stores, as you'd imagine, people came out of the woodwork pitching various ideas about other things to do with it. And that really wasn't the point of the Bowie 75 thing, so we didn't really pursue much of it. But it's interesting the ideas that are percolating out there around doing some of these things as ancillary shows or pop-up events around festivals. And we don't have to rabbit hole on it too much. But when you talk about that model or that iteration of it, in your mind, are those separate ticketed events or are they essentially ways to get people to come in and buy merch? Is it a gift shop? I think the future is that this is going to get wrapped in the ticket price at some point. But I think that until that happens, I do think it's a separate ticket, a separately ticketed event. Again, going back to our conversation about the core audience, if you're going to have 200,000 people that are going to come to a show in Las Vegas at Allegiant or over a period of time at the Sphere, then it makes sense because you know you've got destination, a couple hundred thousand core fans that are going to be able to to shop or activate in that space. I think what you're saying is actually the crux to the entire immersive space right now, which is that we're willing to pay $20 to go see a movie right now. But if somebody wants us to go see an immersive experience, almost everybody's looking for a discounted $20 ticket to go yeah. to see that experience. And that's where I think the rubber hits the road with a lot of these immersive experiences is that you're paying $20 to see a movie in a theater that's also playing in 1,100 theaters around the country. You're paying $20 to go to an immersive experience that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Right. That's a premium event. Exactly. And so I think that's 
figuring out how to place value on these events is really going to be the key to the future. Unfortunately, because of, of some of the ways that things, you know, content's been discounted because you're not presenting an actual artist, it's going to fall into the other forms of entertainment where people are just going to look at it as something they can do on a Thursday or, or Friday night. So figuring out how to make it more of a premium experience and connect it to other larger events, I think is the key to this whole space. The other thing I'll say is that Immersive seems to continue to be working amazingly globally and North America, I don't believe is at the forefront of ticket sales for Immersive experiences. Canada is an amazing place for Immersive. Europe, London, South America, the Middle East, Japan, Really, if you look at what's happening globally, they're blowing it out of the water. <laughs> Any idea why? There's a whole podcast I think we could do about this, and I actually have had this conversation a bit. I think a lot of the entertainment dollars in America are going to mainstream talent. I think globally, yeah. there's not as much access to that, and therefore the dollar stretches in different places. I also think, honestly, the technology that's happening in Japan and in some certain parts of the world is further ahead than what we have here in terms of immersive. We're off the artist immersive at this point, but even when you're talking about the meow wolves of the world, so to speak, there's places in South America and Japan that are equally or greater in terms of immersive. The global market for immersive seems to be thriving. The domestic market... I think is very finicky. Your point about the mainstream or superstar talent hoovering up a lot of the market share too, that again, that could be probably its own hour to talk about as well, but it's it's not a sign of health in the ecosystem. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, especially, and then maybe this can lead us to the last question I have for you. I'm curious as to what your outlook is on touring, given that we seem to be in this bizarre sky's the limit moment. Yet, when you talk to certain segments of the market, people are really still struggling. Like it's, It seems like it's a tale of, yeah. if not two markets, two or three markets, you know, low, mid, and high, and they all have unique perspectives right now. It's not the case that everybody's blowing the doors off everything. That's correct. And part of that comes back to, even if you're selling the tickets, things cost a lot more money now than they did a handful of years ago. The, the middle class of touring is a really tough place to be right now because you still have to pay for the production, the buses, the trucks, everything yeah. else. Still want to put on a show. Yeah. You still want to put on a show. Quality needs to be there, but you know, your grosses can only be so high. I'm very positive about the next five, six years, I think are going to be amazing. The challenges are there's so much content out there. You know what I say? It's a great time to be an agent. Yeah. Right? It's got to be, it's got to be it's because you're not in the risk game. You're not promoting. You have to play in a show. The promoters need you. The artists need you. I mean, I think it's an amazing time to be an agent. I think the amount of content is just going to continue to grow, which is going to make things more competitive. But in terms of like gross sales, I think it's just going to go up and up and up. Will we see a flatten out of expenses? Maybe a little bit. I actually see that middle class of touring. The ticket prices will have to catch up a little bit to the upper class of touring, the arena stadium level. 
What I've seen a lot of is that theater ticket prices and even some arena ticket prices, they're starting to inch up there. But in order for that sector and even the, the club, ballroom, theater, amphitheater size artists and projects, I think it's either going to be one of two things, volume of touring or ticket prices have to, are going to have to keep increasing in order for that sector to survive. Again, going back to the $20 example, right? In my opinion, there shouldn't be a $20 concert to go to anymore. There shouldn't be. Why should we pay less to go to a concert than to a movie? You can barely go to a fast food restaurant for less than $20. We used to talk about the $20, and I think there does have to be this kind of readjustment psychologically with ticket prices. But the flip side to what I'm saying is that the top end is massive. And that's why the dollars at the top end are just going to keep going. It's not going to stop. I think that you will see really bullish growth over these next handful of years because everybody's still going to be feeling like they need to catch up from 2020 and 2021. I don't think that mentality ends. I think what happens though is that the bubble, I don't know if it'll burst, but the bubble is just going to keep getting bigger in terms of like the amount of tours. It's not like that strategic thing like it used to be with agents where you're going, oh, this one's going to tour this year and then that one's going to tour next year. It's like, everybody's touring every year. (laughs) Right. Just get your on sales out the door. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's interesting though, Jonathan, about that is 20 years ago, I can remember working on pretty big like global tours where there was a segment of the market that was doing things like VIP or travel packages or what I would call, I'm going to use a word that's indelicate. I don't mean it with any negative connotation, various schemes to serve the top end of the market. Mm -hmm. And in all those cases, the artists were always careful or always defensive about saying, yes, but our average ticket price is blah, blah, blah. Look at it compared to Broadway or take your family to a baseball game. But my point where I'm going is that the, the market's always been there. It's that it's much more mainstreamed now, and it's just the way it is. Like the biggest repercussion or the biggest thing that I think changed coming out of COVID was that mainstreaming and that mainstream acceptance of the dynamic pricing. Like what was seen as experimental and limited to a few, now it's basically like, I mean, I don't know if you see it in the family entertainment world, but certainly on the rock side, like it's baked into it's it's it offers are predicated on it, right? It's like this yep, is of course this is the new reality. And nobody's really blushing about it. Yeah. And and I think it's just gonna keep getting more aggressive. Look, I think that the demand is there for more and more shows. There might be a few too many festivals out there, but I think in terms of headliners, I think it's just gonna keep growing. I'm waiting for you to put on the family entertainment festival. I want to see the kid of Palooza that you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, I, we've explored it. We do have a few ideas of kind of some bigger outdoor stuff, some nap rooms and some <laughs> how to scale some of this stuff. There are so many little challenges with family entertainment you have to think about, especially if you're going to get people out in the summertime. And all that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. If there's a way to figure it out, we will, we will try to crack it. And that I have no doubt about, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for making time to do this, man. I, oh, I man, love so much I love fun about this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, Jonathan Shank and everyone at Terrapin Station Entertainment. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. 
I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you'd like to support our work, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. There you'll find our free episode archive, weekly postings on our official blog, and a ton more. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.